I'm not going to do such a great introduction, and I'm sure that she'll do a much better job. Um, Katie, you're an extremely busy person who does many things. I think that's the way I would kind of introduce it. You are the ecosystem technical advocate for the CNCF, um, and you do a lot of other stuff. You're also Open UK. Could you perhaps just give us a brief introduction to to who you are, how you got to this point, um, and the different things that you're doing right now? Absolutely. So hello, everyone. My name is Katie Gamanji, and as mentioned, I am currently the Ecosystem Technical Advocate for CNCF, or Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Within this role, I am leading the end-user community, and this is formed of vendor-neutral organizations that use cloud-native technologies, but they don't sell them. So this vendor-neutrality characteristic is quite important for this community. And my, one of my responsibilities as well is to close the gap between the projects within the ecosystem and the end users. So pretty much, how can we provide the feedback from the practitioners to the actual project maintainers? Um, as well as mentioned, I am currently an ambassador and I'm gonna be the head judge for OpenDK Awards, which are gonna happen in October. Pretty much, I am collaborating with this organization to make sure that open standards are used fairly and square across data, software, and hardware. And I have many other roles in the community. I am one of the advisory board for Captain um, Project, which is the Sandbox Projects at the moment. And I have a lot of affiliations with different other publications. Um, but at the moment, I'm not gonna talk about that too much. In terms of my background, kind of to transition um, into how I got into this role. So I've been working for companies such as Condé Nast and American Express. Mainly I'm mentioning those because mm -hmm. that's where we use cloud native quite heavily. At Condenast, we had a completely clean sheet. So we had a green field where we could build our platform. So we had Kubernetes at the centerpiece, and then we tried to enhance it with different tools um, to kind of provision our observability stack, to provision our authentication and so forth. Now that was Condenast. Um, and we, one of our aim is to create a decentralized platform, which is going to be globally distributed as well. At American Express, however, um, my role was slightly different. I was brought into the team to introduce some of the more advanced features. The team was already using Kubernetes, but we were looking into things such as service mesh. We were looking into how can we have a more transparent outlook of how, what ha what's happening with the platform. So at that particular moment, it was more of an enhancement and pretty much the next stage rather than introduction of, of Kubernetes. So from that, I was working for end-user companies, as you can see. Um, and from that, I moved towards the community fully. And that's how I got into this role at this moment. Okay, very good. And obviously, you're a person who knows the CNCF quite well, given your role. For some folks out there, it's still kind of a new concept. I mean, how would you, you know, in, in just in a couple of sentences, how would you describe the CNCF and what is the value that it provides? So pretty much CNCF, you can think about this as a place where we host multiple open source projects out there. We provide them a neutral ground for growth and collaboration. So they have everything hosted under the, the CNCF umbrella and it's easier uh, for them, but at the same time, they have the advantage of having a good connection with the community straight away. Because we over the years, we've built these large kind of connections. We have a network we have with the community. And once a project gets within the CNCF, it already has a good kind of um, introduction to, to the community as well. So um, you can think about CNCF pretty much as a, a vendor neutral ground for projects to actually grow. Again, the projects that we host within the CNCF, um, they are focused on interoperability. We do not want to sell vendor specific tools either. That's why vendor neutrality is something I'm gonna mention um, in regards to CNCF quite a lot. Um, so all of these projects, they pretty much focus on 
how can they solve a problem within the cloud native ecosystem, but at the same time does not plug in into a particular vendor or a particular system. So these projects are very well suited to be within part of the CNCF. And that's why we have um, a lot of them joining. Uh, actually, we had a new batch of sandbox projects which were uh, joined or approved this week. So the ecosystem grows um, slowly, but quite surely. Very, very good. All right, yeah, because I understand, I think, I think sometimes when you're kind of in this world, all of these things you might sort of take for granted or seem very natural. Um, but for some folks that are out there that just don't know what it is, or they, they may have heard about an event or things like that, um, that it's, it's good it's good to get different opinions on it. But I think that how you described it is a, is a, is a wonderful way of putting that, particularly focusing on the uh, neutrality aspect. Um, you know, there, there's that this is open source projects, people from all over the world collaborating to push these things forward without any, let's say, direct commercial in, in mind. Um, and I think that's, that, yeah, that's something that makes it quite unique. So Katie, what are we going to talk about today? We got a few things written down talking about, you know, developer experience and it's something you mentioned as well too regarding surveys and things like that. And, you know, developer experience seems to be getting bigger and bigger. What's your, what's been your experience with developer experience? With the developer experience, actually before we move into the developer experience. Oh, that's okay. Uh, topic, that's yeah. Um, well, one thing I wanted to mention is that within the CNCF, it's not just about the projects, it's about the community. So, um, if there are any questions in regards to different bodies of the CNCF, there are three of them at the moment. We have the governing board, we have the TOC and the end user community. So all of these three parts construct the CNCF um, uh, overall. So if there are any questions, I could deep dive into that. Just as an FYI, if anyone wants to explore or research further. Well, but, no, the, and the thing is, I, I yeah. do, I, I, I do actually kind of want to because how do yeah. you know? Because once again, going back to your sort of your job title and your job description, you're interacting with all three of those simultaneously in one way, right? Sort of liaising between. Mm -hmm. um, so, how does that work? What do you do? Precisely. So, I think my focus is more, mostly between uh, project maintainers, TOCs, and the end user community. So. Going back to to, uh, to this topic, the governing board uh, are pretty much managing the um, the capital for uh, for our projects and the the ecosystem, and pretty much they do all the marketing and so forth. So that's going to be um, the decision making process of the CNCF. Then we have the TOC or Technical Oversight Committee, which are constructed of eleven members within the community. They have been in the industry uh, for for decades. They pretty much some of them are the legends of the industry, and they pretty much um, will enable some of the projects to either be introduced within the CNCF ecosystem, or they'll help the movement of a project between levels. So we have sandbox incubation and graduation. So initially, the project can join as at the sandbox level, and then when it gains more adoption from the community, it has a healthy contributor base, it will be uh, pretty much able to apply for a movement incubation, and there is a due diligence process, which is going to be led by the T one of the TOC members. So the TOCs pretty much steer the vision of the CNCF landscape, that ginormous landscape that everyone has been uh, terrified when they look at it, because there is pretty much a lot of projects and a lot of uh, companies or organizations that had affiliations with CNCF, that technical part of that landscape is pretty much steered um, by the TOC. And then at the end, we're gonna have the end users. And as mentioned before, these are the organizations that use cloud native technologies, but they don't sell it. So um, some of the things that we try to do with the, the end user community is to get this um, input from them around the projects and the adoption they have around the projects. And one of the initiatives that uh, we had in the past, which was launched uh, last year, is the technology radar. So pretty much how um, 
And these are uh, focused on a particular theme, for example, continuous delivery or secret management, mm -hmm. service mesh and so forth. So we have a different theme for every single radar. And then we um, ask the end users what exactly they use and based on their voting and based on their usage, we'll place them within the radar. So between adopting something which is proven to be very safe in, in a production environment to something which is probably at a, an assess or even hold, something which is not recommended by the end users. So definitely check that out. Uh, and as well, a new launch program is going to be the end user launch, which are pretty much exclusive live streams for the end users, has been launched last week. So this is a way to have a conversation with end users and anyone can pretty much jump in and ask questions of how they do things and how they deliver the cloud native platform. So within my role, I will interact with all of this into a, a degree, uh, but more mainly I'm focused on the technical aspects and the end user community, pretty much closing the gap between them two. Yeah, and with that in mind, thinking about the tech radar, what are some things in 2021 that folks should you know, keep their eyes open for? In terms of the trends and uh, themes? Yeah. There are many things going on. I think KubeCon, which actually <laughs> KubeCon is going to be next week. So very convenient. Uh, most of the themes I think yeah. are going to be more um, unraveled during KubeCon week, but I think there is always a push towards the edge technologies, especially now that we want to have devices closer to, to the users and we want them to be agile, we want them to be easily to be deployed, maintained, um, and pretty much managed throughout. So Edge is definitely a theme. We have seen GitOps kind of getting a lot of momentum for the last years, but I think now we go, get to a fruition where we have projects at the incubation level. So we have Flux and Argo CD. And actually Argo CD currently is undergoing the graduation um, uh, voting, which uh, is actually quite reassuring. Kubernetes, for example, is a graduated project as well, which again reassures that this project has been used by countless of end user organizations and it's been very stable in the production system. Um, as well, we have um, some of the, the themes are going to be around the new runtimes around Kubernetes, everything which is beyond containers. We've been talking about serverless, we've been talking about how can we maybe decrease the footprint of an application within a cluster. And all of these, I think they're going to be even more emphasized during KubeCon. But I'm not going to reveal too much because I'd like the no spoilers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No spoilers. To enjoy, enjoy everything and uh, kind of get the new information that they're seeking. Good. And what, I mean, how do you, just once again, to, to get an idea about how many Sandbox projects are there at the moment that you know of? Goodness mine. Oh, <laughs> I think. Uh, uh, more than? <laughs> we get to say more than? Yeah. Or I at think, least. I think we, actually, I don't want to overestimate or underestimate it. At some point, there were 30 of them. However, we had a new round of Sandbox projects being accepted. So I would say somewhere around, I don't know, 40, 50 around that, because we, we've streamlined the Sandbox project on purpose to make sure that everyone can have a ground, that neutral ground for, for growth and development. And if we're actually basing ourselves on this healthy competition, if end users find this tool useful, if they adopt it, then these projects naturally will propagate to the incubation stage. So we kind of have this healthy competition um, between the projects. So there's plenty of them and I, I assume that's gonna grow even more in this year. Yeah, so you'll have more work to do essentially, just more more folks to be interacting with, more stuff to be checking out. I mean, it's just, Precisely. do you think, I mean, are you going to clone yourself? Or I'm just saying like, I think there's, there's oh. it just <laughs> the amount of growth and activity that's going on there. Um, mm. But anyway, 
That's good. And, and so you, and since you've started in this role, what have been, what, what would you say have been the, for you, like some really exciting points of stuff that you've been able to work on where you're like, you know what, I'm really glad that I got into this position because I'm able to have an impact here. I'm really excited about the stuff that I'm doing in this particular area. What would you say? So I am still kind of defining what I would like to, to get into the long-term out of the end user community. But for me, it's pretty much creating this feedback loop. This is something which is extremely valuable for both end users and the project maintainers. So something like being able to talk with the end users to find out more about their use case, to find out their particular way of using Kubernetes. One thing which I like about the cloud native ecosystem is that not one platform is gonna be the same. Even if they use similar technologies, if you look at the platform, they're gonna use it in completely different ways most of the time. So kind of deep diving into these end user cases, it's quite exciting for me. It's something which pretty much makes me think. I, I like to kind of deep dive into how exactly containers deployed, how they manage the security, what is the actual developer experience from an upper um, engineer point of view and so forth. So being able to do that, but at the same time, collaborating with the projects. So one of the projects, of course, is going to be the Kubernetes community. They're quite heavily interested within the end user feedback. So currently I'm trying to work with them and see what is the best way for them to get this input from the end user community. So there's a lot of interaction. I think this uh, expansion of my networking, expansion of um, different perspectives of how cloud native can be used. This is something which was, truly fascinates me and keeps me in this position. Yeah, with that in mind, you know, thinking about feedback, a lot of times it's about, you know, asking the right questions. What are the right questions to ask? What are things that you think that anyone who wants to get end user feedback should keep in mind? One of the, so when I'm talking about the end users, I think um, their main priority, if you're working for an organization, like your main priority is to deliver the product, is to construct the platform, is to provide that feature. It doesn't necessarily translate into active contribution to the ecosystem. So most of the time, engineers do not have time to either contribute for code to a project or even do some like, like active advocacy for a particular project. So this is kind of the main difference between some someone who is very deeply integrated within the community and, and some someone who is an end user potentially. So I think when, when it comes to the end user community, it's more of like be efficient of what you want to ask from them. So if, if they give you, I don't know, three to five minutes a month, how, how are you gonna use that and actually get useful feedback out of them? So I think when it comes to, because they are the practitioners, I think some of the most valuable feedback you can get from them is, is this actually useful? Do you see this tool being used in the future within your stack? Is there something you would like to be solved? Um, pretty much trying to understand their problems now and try to understand the challenges that they want to solve in the future. And a combination of this, they'll always give you a good roadmap if you're talking about the roadmaps. But at the same time, just getting any any kind of feedback in regards to, to their experience of um, integrating, collaborating, and adopting cloud-native uh, tooling, I think is going to be quite valuable because at the moment we assume that everything is smooth on the other end, but we never question it. So I think getting a bit more input from that perspective is going to be useful for the entire landscape as well. Yeah, I see what you mean. That, yeah, if you don't ask, how can you possibly know? You're like, well, it seems like everything is going well, but you have if you don't, if you don't actually get out there and ask those questions. Speaking of questions, we got a question from somebody in the audience. Um, Satish asked, "Cloud native, the cloud native landscape is growing. What are your thoughts on this?" And was kind enough to share the cloud native landscape link, which I will share in the main chat. Um, but what would you say about this? About the the growth of the cloud native landscape? I think this most importantly, what is. Uh, 
is to be taken into account here. This has been an organic growth of the ecosystem. It's not something which is artificially driven or something which is led by a particular vendor. It's something where the community finds. Um, so how usually how a project gets uh, gets born is there is a challenge or there's something needs to be solved. There is a group of people who create a small community around it. They create a first MVP. And then they, if it's something which is adopted or solves a problem for a subset of companies, then it's more appropriate to be a sandbox project and then it kind of propagates within the ecosystem. So what I'm trying to say here is that most of the projects within the landscape, they are targeted to solve something. And they are targeted and they've been created by the community. So I actually envision for this landscape to grow even more. And I do understand that it's quite overwhelming when you look at the landscape and just explore, like, just like, have the first look, it, it, it's a lot. But yeah. at the same time, this I think accentuates the diversity and the fact that when it comes to cloud native, we don't have one pattern or one solution to solve your problem. It's more about we have a set of tooling and you can really tailor or you can really choose which, um, which particular technology you'd like to introduce within your platform to solve your problems. So it's about the end users. How can you, with all of these technologies, further leverage your product and your services? So I actually see this as a very positive thing. And again, I'm, I'm going to go back to the healthy competition. The projects which are really going to stand out and really will lead or form and shape the platform of the future, they are already there. It's about the practitioners adopting them and giving feedback. Yeah, it's um, a very, very good answer. And with that in mind, like you said, is that I think at first glimpse, just because of my experience, which is very limited uh, in CNCF, but very happy to be uh, more of a part of it now, is, is that when you just start looking at the numbers, you go into a Slack channel that has 45,000 people, or in the case of Kubernetes, 120,000 people, you're like, where do I begin? But where you begin is you start talking to people and asking questions and people will help you. I mean, that's the, the community spirit, like, and I can't stress this enough. And from my experience as well, going to the uh, contributor experience, um, uh, marketing meetings every Fridays, which I love to do. And sometimes I can't because of scheduling issues, but um, the insistence on being welcoming and that there's a place for everybody, no matter what your skill level, no matter what your age, no matter what country you come from, um, I think is absolutely phenomenal. And I think that's one of the reasons why that landscape is growing so much is because I think it's I think it's contagiously exciting to be a part of um, to be a part of the CNCF, and I only expect that to continue to grow. Um, it's part of what I'm going to be trying to do as a CNCF ambassador as well. So anyway, good That's stuff. Very very good answer about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now let's now let's jump into a little bit more about the de uh, developer experience, right? Because this is something that yeah. you had mentioned. Um, Okay, we've we we've already touched a little bit on you know on the feedback. We talked about empathy. We've talked about anticipating what you know, someone's objective is going to be. Um, what what are the things that first got your attention about this area of developer experience, and what are the things that you would like to see happen? Or what what kind of things would you like to be working on um, in the next few years? So when it comes to developer experience, um, I think this should come uh, well. This actually comes from my experience as a cloud platform engineer at Condé Nast when we had to develop our platform from scratch. And mm. as a platform uh, engineer, you have to interact with your cluster using the CLI. And this is a very natural behavior, I would say. Just log into terminal, do kubectl get pods, and you kind of can debug and troubleshoot all the way from there. However, what um, one of the things that we try to do with that, uh, with that team is to upskills our developers to be more self-serviced when they deploy the application. And one thing that we realized is that it's assumed that the engineers are going to be fluent using kubectl, and that's completely and not necessarily a, um, 
a truth which should be propagated, which means we need to think how the average developer at the end is going to use Kubernetes to deploy their application, but not necessarily know everything within the Kubernetes um, uh, ecosphere or, or cluster. Yeah. So that was the, the first time when I got to think about the developer experience on the other end. And thinking about developer experience, it's about simplicity, make it simple for a developer, stream interact with a cluster. If you can abstract things, great, that's even better. It's about optimization, meaning that if there are any patterns that you would like to identify in terms of the deployment or in terms of the interaction with the clusters, try to automate those or try to simplify those. Um, for example, this is uh, what I'm referring in this particular case is for example, kubectl plugins, which will allow you to create new commands with particular behaviors or particular characteristic or to get information from the cluster. Um, again, when you're talking about the developer experience, we need to think something which we can further extend in the future. So for example, if you introduce a new interface or a new way to interact with a cluster or deploy, always think that this is just the first building block. You'll be able, well, you should be able to use that and to further extend it if, if needed so in the future. Um, so all of these principles kind of, um, Got, kind of were emphasized at that time to me. And then that's where I started to think more about the developer experience, how, how we can transition from the CLI, use plugins, kubectl plugins, use um, web and terminal UIs, which really obstructs the layer of how you interact with Kubernetes. Towards the end, where we had um, methodologies such as GitOps, even cloud native IDEs. And this is like, it's a deployment pattern, but at the same time, it should be emphasized how the developer experience changes because the only thing that they need to, to care about is to keep the state of their application within a Git repository. And the GitOps tool by default will, will um, reconciliate any changes. So the developer experience is slightly changed. Instead of pushing it state by stage all the way to production, it's actually going to be automatically pulled. So that is, again, an improvement, um, if you like to choose so, from the developer experience side. When talking about the cloud native IDs, and this is something you, you asked me what I would like to work in the future, it's something which I would like to grow more mm. in the future. Um, so here is how can we construct this um, um, maybe shareable, uh, scalable um, environment or development environments for our engineers. So what I'm actually mean by that is that currently everyone develops their application on the local environment and it's very uncommon for this to be uh, similar from one engineer to the other. Now with tools such as Gitpod, for example, this allows us to share our like code space as, as code. So pretty much your environment as code. And this is something which is easily replicable and you'll be able to always test and verify what exactly your colleague experiences and how they developed this particular application and how it runs and troubleshoot and debug forever. So there's some of the things which again, tries to kind of move the development, well, to improve the developer experience towards the the right, so from the incipient stages, when the developer works on the application, we have already something they can share as code with their colleagues before even pushing it to the cluster. So this is something I find quite exciting at the moment. And I'm actually more than happy to deep dive a bit more into that because I do realize I've kind of- um, No, no, we're uh, good, good, jump right, yeah, 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 do it, do it, do it. Good. Yeah, I've jumped a bit on this one. But this is something uh, exciting from the developer experience that I would like to see a bit more of the improvement um, happening. Okay, all right, very, very good. Um, with that in mind as well, too, is that uh, it's because something that you touched on previously that that's something that has come up in more than a few conversations is 
just how much does a practitioner need to know in the Kubernetes space? Because I think that for a lot of folks as well, too, that's overwhelming in the beginning. That like, and, and also that, and then, you know, we've had conversations with, with folks like Jim Bawadia from Kiberno, you know, thinking about policy, about how to create an environment that's safe, where are the right guardrails, um, how are you going to make sure that, um, but also so that it's like, no, your job is to do this. You don't need to worry about these other things. Um, that this is a sort of concern that's that that's, that's getting in there. I think it's also an issue as well too, is as you know, there's more and more of a demand for folks with Kubernetes knowledge, but then a lot of people will feel like, no, the space is just simply too big. Um, what do you think? What do you think are things that are happening right now that will make adoption of Kubernetes easier? And what other things could happen to make it even easier on top of that? So I think the adoption of Kubernetes the day one has been simplified to uh, to kind of a good level. So getting Kubernetes running in-house, having um, having some application deployed, that's absolutely great. What I think the, the challenge is, is to simplify the day two operations. So how can we manage our clusters? How can we uh, do upgrades? How can we do stateful applications as well? Because this is something which usually comes with the day two operations streamlining some of them are going to make it even easier for organizations to to adopt these tools but at the same time i think like i think it's more of like the question should be put a bit differently um adopting kubernetes i think it's it's not necessarily a challenge anymore it's who needs to adopt kubernetes or cloud native tooling because we have a very good momentum within um, within the ecosystem and with across the industries and sectors we have kubernetes pretty much used everywhere. But at the same time, we see uh, what I mean by that, I would like to see more adoption of cloud native tools when it comes to enterprise, when it comes to financial institutions, when it comes to industries which are more regulated, because having cloud native there means that we really kind of um, reach to some of our hardest or like late adopters that we really aimed for for years at the moment. So seeing the adoption in that circles, I think is going to be um, uh, something which will maybe further or maybe make it more clear where exactly we need to improve with the um, Kubernetes uh, adoption or features and so forth. But I think it's more about the industries. I don't think it's a challenge anymore to even like bootstrap a cluster. We can do that with like a one line. For example, K3S or Kind, you can have a local clusters within minutes now. So I don't think that's a challenge anymore. Um, it's more of like data operations and it's more about how can we entice some of the harder industries to get to to adopt these technologies and getting and, 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 and from so, them. Yeah, and what, and what industries would those be if you could go a little bit further on that, where you see a fair amount of resistance still? I wouldn't say, um, I think I think when it comes to financial institutions, for example, um, actually have very good examples of uh, financial institutions using cloud native, but I think for them, it's not necessarily adoption, it's more about being open that you're using mm -hmm. a technology like that. We're talking about industries that have been quite closed in terms of, um, what technologies they use, they, they wouldn't usually disclose that. It's something quite uh, quite internal. Actually, most of them develop uh, a lot of tooling internally, just not to use a third-party software. So for these companies, it's not necessarily uh, about adoption. It's about a cultural shift and a mindset shift that it's okay to share mm. that you're using this kind of technologies. So financial sectors, I would like to see more, uh, more usage of cloud native in telcos. I think this is something which is pushing forward this year. And I think it's going to be happening towards the next year as well. Um, again, this is going to be even more emphasized with the development of the edge uh, cloud native tools as well. So hopefully that's um, again, going to further it um, uh, within this, within this uh, space. 
Okay, good. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's a really, really good point. Um, and so anyway, so thinking about that, I, I do understand your point that it is, it isn't, it really isn't that difficult nowadays to start with the basics of, like you said, spinning up, a, you know, get a, getting a cluster going, um, things of that nature using K3s, et cetera. Having said that, though, um, I think it maybe depends on the part of the world that you live in, because, uh, you know, in the, in the adoption phases in different countries and in different sectors, as you were just commenting on the financial sector, um, is, is, is different. I mean, where, where I live in Spain, there's an increasing amount of people that are, that are starting to use this, and tomorrow there's actually an event, um, and there is going to be more activities happening and, uh, for folks who speak Spanish. Partially because it gives the feeling that that is not happening if it's not being talked about when in reality it is happening. So that's why it's even more important to share the things that are going on there. Um, but from a technological perspective, like you said, is that it's not really it doesn't it's not going to take uh, you know a PhD in in cloud native technologies to to mm-hmm. get on this kind of stuff. And also when you have communities such as the CNCF. Um, such as all the folks that are actively contributing to Kubernetes, there's more than enough help and documentation, things like that, that you can get uh, access to that wasn't necessarily available for other projects, let's say 10, 15 years ago. But I think this is becoming more and more of a global movement as, as the landscape uh, expands. Um, one thing as well, too, talking about developer experience, something that we talked about um, when, when we connected a few months ago, is you mentioned something about sheet ops. <laughs> I was actually hoping you wouldn't. <laughs> I perfectly touch upon that. <laughs> oh my it's goodness! It's too cool. It's too cool. So tell us about sheet ops. Yep. So sheet ops is. Uh, so we've been talking about how can we manage a Kubernetes cluster, but not having hands on on the cluster. So pretty much removing the CLI from the picture completely. That's why when usually I would introduce GitOps because you have a a nice kind of uh, CI/CD tool UI, and then you do all of your interaction with a cluster there when you deploy. Or another way, um, which is called Sheet Ops. Now, this is implying that you can manage your Kubernetes cluster using Google Spreadsheets. So it's a double E there, it's Sheet Ops. Um, so with this particular tool, it's, it's not something which is advanced. It has been created more of a hackathon project of like a, a silly idea. But what it actually emphasizes is that you can really, like the way Kubernetes is built, it has these building blocks principles at the basis and you can integrate it with pretty much everything out there. It has um, an API, which is uh, pretty much, what can I say? Like you can actually do a lot of, uh, you can connect to it, you can construct with it and like you can send request it and, and get um, get responses framed quite easily. Um, so we see ops, Currently, there are two operations which are supported. It's scaling up an application or scaling down. So pretty much changing the amount of replicas for your application. Um, yeah, if it's uh, actually their mission is to replace YAML with uh, Excel. So I have heard engineers who have been complaining about YAML, um, managing YAML and indentations and so forth. Now you have an option to manage a cluster completely and solely through Excel spreadsheets if that is something you're very passionate about. and. There's definitely um, ways to contribute to that project. If you feel like this is the way to go forward within the community, do contribute. I think uh, the maintainers are going to be more than happy to, or even surprised to hear <laughs> that someone else is interested in promoting this um, this methodology. And what would you say from your experience, um, your experience working with YAML, would you prefer that there would be an alternative? <laughs> um, I would uh, I wouldn't say this is the best option to transition to to Excel to manage your clusters. I think when you're talking about um, YAML and managing uh, 
declarative Kubernetes manifest, there are better ways to interact with it. Uh, one of the ways is introducing templating. So for example, Helm and Customize, they have been proven to be quite successful at templating your, um, your applications before being deployed to different regions and different clusters. So templating definitely helps. For example, when I was at Condé Nast, the engineers didn't have to interact with any YAML manifest. The only thing they need to provide it was a Helm values file, which is pretty much the, a list of input parameters that you need to pass for your YAML manifest. So for them, the, um, let's put the declarative manifest were completely abstracted. However, again, you still have YAML, uh, you, well, you still have to some extent YAML values files, um, which can get quite extensively. So usually for that, the next stage is to introduce a, a web or a terminal UI. So usually it's going to be a web UI. So a point of presence where you can manage your application, something which resembles a Heroku experience. I think many of our developers in the community have gone back to the Heroku experience. It's known for its simplicity to deploy an application. You just need to have a few clicks and your application is going to be up and running. You don't need to care about anything which is happening underneath. And this is the experience that ultimately would like to provision for any engineers that would like to deploy to Kubernetes. So if you like want to further uh, improve that developer experience, I would definitely go for um, a web terminal UI. There are plenty, plenty of tools out there nowadays. Um, I think there is um, KLens, I think it's called, which is currently an IDE that can be installed on any operating system and you'll be able to manage your clusters. Um, something which doesn't necessarily allow you to deploy an application, but allows you to troubleshoot an application, which is um, equally important, is, to, is a tool called Octant. It has been developed by the VMware SRE team. So pretty much what it allows, allows you is to explore how your application, what, what application states it, is within a cluster. So one of the cool things that I like about that tool is, for example, you have your application, which is going to be a pod they link all of the other resources which are connected to your pod. So usually when you're talking about Kubernetes, you have a pod, you have a replica set, which manages the amount of um, the replicas you have for your application. Then you have a deployment, which pretty much deals with all the rolling out strategies between two versions of your application. You have a service account, which is by default associated with a pod. You might have a service, you might have some ingress, you might have some volumes and all of these kind of components, you'll be able to see them in one view. So pretty much a graph of everything which is linked to your application. And this can be quite useful for, for someone who tries to explore a bit further uh, what's happening within the cluster. So definitely would recommend to look into, into those tools. But I think um, there's a, a good leap nowadays into improving the way we deliver those portals and, um, and dashboards. How can we explore the cluster without actually having a CLI or without actually being um, on the node within a cluster to actually see what's going on there? Very, very good. Um, within all this and seeing the, the increased presence of yesterday, we had a meetup with somebody talking about data ops. Um, we've had people talking about DevSecOps. We, you know, it seems like you know, we put ops on lots of different things. Do you imagine a future where all these techniques could be possibly unified under one sort of umbrella? I would, uh, <laughs> I would actually put this question back to you. Why would you find this useful? Like, do you, do you see a world where we need all of these techniques within one umbrella? Well, I just think that at a certain point, no, no, no. I, I don't think, I don't think in the same way that we've had the conversation many times, you know, because we've had a lot of conversations about operators, because we're mm -hmm. talking about data on Kubernetes, and some people say, you know, eventually there will be an operator that will control all other operators. I don't know. I think it's sort of like, you, you see how other systems, you know, happen, you know, that something, eventually, you know, things just get absorbed. 
I guess for me is that uh, what I frequently try to do is because we've had conversations about app ops. We've had, like I said, uh, you know, we're talking about GitOps, we're talking about DevOps, um, all these different sorts of practices. And, you know, some seem to be sort of evolving out of one or another. We were talking yesterday about the differences between data ops versus SRE. To what extent can these things be codified? Obviously, DevOps, there's been a lot of energy that's gone into that. And then the security folks are like, hey, we're here too. So call it DevSecOps. <laughs> um, so I think that, I think that, you know, and, and then as well, what happens with a lot of these things too is, is our speaker from yesterday who's been at IBM for over 20, 23 years was saying that, um, you know, that he had been doing data ops for a long time, it's just they didn't necessarily call it that. So sometimes a technique or a practice can actually be existing for a very, very long period of time and not just have a name. Names make things more convenient and labels and things of that nature. I'm just considering from a best practices perspective, I don't know to what extent a lot of these things can apply. It sounds like what a lot of things have happened is like, okay, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not an expert on this at all. Um, let's take practices that are used in, in, you know, for, in software development and now let's uh, apply them to, you know, to, oper to, to operations. So in the same way that something would be planned, deployed, retros, et cetera, we're going to do things in a similar way. That's what I'm just saying is that just from a, a best practices perspective, also there are business interests behind, you know, favoring one or another or, or community interest, things of that, of that sort. Um, but I was just curious just because since we were talking about that, but you're, mm -hmm. you had made a very good decision of returning the question to me. That was a good decision. I um, actually, well, I, I can respond that. Um, my, I was actually quite, quite curious. What was your perspective on this one? Because for me, seeing all of these initiatives, it's actually something um, advantageous for, for the ecosystem. And I think there is, at this moment, there is more uh, maybe benefits from having them developed independently. And then why, is, why I'm saying that is like when you unify together everything, then you have another challenge to keep everything unified, keeping make, making sure everything is like compatible and backwards compatibility and so forth. So you have multiple parts moving. But at this stage, because we have these initiatives, um, flourishing, we're getting kind of to, to a stage of fruition even with some of the techniques such as GitOps. Um, I think it's good to see them in, developed independently. We can see patterns, we can see models and standards, and then we can reapply them to other sectors. So I think in this particular case, maybe having, but this is my personal idea, I would see them um, developing independently. It actually can uh, make them go even further and develop new um, new things that can be reapplied to, to other areas. So. I think it really depends on what we're trying to unify. Um, if, it, if it's about introducing, um, because like when you talk about the DevOps, it's more of a cultural shift rather than an actual technology or a particular tool that you use, it's a cultural shift. It's about how can we, like the developers and the infrastructure team, how can they collaborate to pretty much improve the, the way they deploy the application to improve the way they maintain, troubleshoot and so forth. So it's, it's a collaboration. DevSecOps is the same thing, but we have the security team being implied as well. Well, um, where we see that security is not something which happens at some point, like as, as a gate towards the deployment to production, it's something which is taken care of step, step by step, like from the application deployment side, to when you create your infrastructure and so forth. Like this is something which should be integrated. Um, so security should be um, the responsibility for everyone to some extent, but it's, again, we're talking about advocacy, we're talking about upskilling. So all of these things, when we're talking about uh, ops operations, I think most of it, it's about collaboration. It's just the tools that changes. So to some extent, maybe we have some of the basis out there in terms of the 
the, the thinking and the perspective, it's maybe applying it to different sectors. So it really depends how we really want to um, take this on and from which perspective and which tool as well, because it changes, it varies. I think it's a really good point. Like you said, as these, as these uh, disciplines, if we want to call them, or styles are able to develop independently, I think that allows practitioners to kind of shop around and be like, oh, I kind of like this from here. I kind of like that from there. I mean, the same thing we've seen, you know, do you do Scrum or Kanban or Scrum Band, or you're going to mix, you know, a hybrid sort of model, you know, that everyone has to kind of find their, their, their mixing and matching. Related to that, because this is something that, that I like to talk about um, a lot as well, too, is that as much as we talk about technology, we're always at the end of the day talking about human stuff and cultural stuff. What are the things in your experience um, that, that you think that every organization or that a lot of organizations could probably benefit from some more what in their culture? What are the things that you think that, um, that in, in your experience have been beneficial um, that you would find recommendable or you could say that in your case that they definitely worked? Oh, that's a good question, because I think this really depends on the, the industry and the organization. But I think with adoption of cloud native, like if, you, if you're purely thinking about technology, um, mm. by default, the adoption of cloud native technology will advance your tech stack. And this is because even if you try to create, for example, a, a copy of Kubernetes or a copy of like a particular service mesh tool, it doesn't matter. If you try to do that in-house, you'll never reach the same uh, amount of uh, feature development, the same amount of feedback, the same amount of um, velocity around the projects because you have a team which is limited, while the community is out there and the growth of it is organic. So you can actually further benefit from different opinions around the world. So I think like... Oh, when you're talking about people in your organization, I think it's about enablement. I think it's about, uh, well, further research uh, into why you want to adopt cloud native, look into other organization, your peer organizations that have done this step and kind of try to learn from that as well. Um, there's always a way to make a good case for adoption of cloud native. It's more of like, is this truly necessary for that organization at that time? Um, I think most of the engineers, they are, are, are aware of, of the tools. It's sometimes a matter of creating an internal um, cloud native team, something like that, or a community where they can share some of the, uh, the ideas, they can share some of the practices. I have seen that, especially in big organizations, I think they're like, um, I would say, trial, trials to join, like, for example, a particular project that you're going to contribute to a particular projects or to adopt the particular tool. However, all of these initiatives they are segregated. Sometimes just creating that internal community helps for them, not necessarily to outsource it to, to the entire world, but just for them internally. So inner sourcing within their own organization. Something like this can help. But I at the moment I wouldn't say there is one thing that will help everyone to make a good case for cloud native. It really depends from- um, And from when you find it, you can write a book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's, no, it, no, it, I it understand. Really depends, I it, yeah, yeah. Update, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 but I mean, but thinking about the fact, one thing that we haven't mentioned as well is that, you know, you you teach, um, you're in, you know, cloud native, uh, cloud native fundamentals Udacity course, if anybody wants to check that out, um, I should probably check that out as well. I'm just saying is that, it, you know, by, by teaching and, and anticipating the sort of doubts and things like that, points of resistance that would be towards, you know, adopting, um, introducing cloud native technologies in a company, I think it's a really, really good point that it's like, yeah, you can create this on your own, but you're missing out on the community aspect 
of a huge network of support and people that can help you troubleshoot your problems. Um, so, you know, don't be shy, but like you said, it, it, once again, going back to, there are some sectors that are, that are very closed off or that they don't want to have those conversations because it might be uncomfortable for them. Um, so anyway, I think that, I think that that can have a, a role to play there too. Speaking of which, um, tell us about what you do in this, you know, in, as a teacher and as, as an instructor, well, <laughs> what, uh, when did you start teaching and what's on your teaching radar? Um, and what have you learned by teaching? Absolutely. So um, I am collaborating with Udacity to uh, publish the Cloud Native Fundamentals course. So this is something which personally and professionally is one of my goals is to make Cloud Native ubiquitous um, and at the same time to make Cloud Native approachable or to engineers of all levels. So I would, I would love to see students fresh out of university or even during their degree to be able to reach out to the community, maybe ask questions, open issues, not necessarily contribute for code, but be out there and just kind of try to integrate themselves within the community. I, I would love to see that. So for, for this can course, I, can it's I ask my question about, sorry, for, sorry, yeah. sorry, can I stop? Uh, just because after this, actually, I have a meeting, I'm doing a, a meetup with a group of Canadian high school, I'm doing a meetup with a group of Canadian high school students. And they're in like a sort of, you could say like technology club, like in their high school, you know, and obviously I'm going to mention things about the CNCF, but I think that, I think that cloud native technologies, I don't think it's, as you said, like university, and I would go even, you know, younger, you know, like, I think, um, mm -hmm. what message would you, would you project to, you know, people that are, let's say 15, 16 years old, maybe they got into programming because of video games or they're on Twitch or things like that. Um, what kind of, what would be like the first step you'd be like, okay. So if you like technology, you should probably check out this thing called cloud native. What would you say? Oh my goodness, the pressure is on. Um, I would say to them that it's one of the most exciting areas to, to be and work at the moment. Um, I have been within this industry for years now and it has never been the same. There's always something new appearing on the horizon. So if there is a sense of uh, exploration or adventure, I would say even within this uh, kind of students, I would definitely encourage them to apply that uh, enthusiasm of exploration to technology. And I think cloud native um, is one of the best areas within the industry to do so more than, uh, and again, I'm biased, but I would say it's one of the most dynamic areas that exists at the moment out there. Very, very good. That's perfect. I will quote you on that. You will be in my presentation. <laughs> anyway, going back to what your experience as an instructor, all right, how did you, you how did you get into Audacity? Like you said, you want the adoption, you know, to be ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. um, what have you learned through the teaching experience? I think one, uh, one of the reasons I agreed to be an instructor is again, that currently there is a good influence that we can have on the next generation of cloud native practitioners. So we have already engineers that have been doing this for years, but at the same time, I would like to look back and make it easier for students to transition within this industry as well. So that's kind of my motivation behind this. Um, pretty much make sure that the next cloud of engineers uh, are gonna make it easier and more kind of fulfilling to be within this area. Um, and maybe some of the points that I'm touching upon, one of the things I want to mention is, again, this is designed for students that have some programming experience. So they know that there is an application going on and they would like to deploy it to a Kubernetes cluster. So the syllabus goes through how can they permit, well, actually we're gonna talk about the architectural design. So microservices and um, monoliths, we're gonna go all the way from there, like from the beginning. Then we're gonna talk about how can they package with Docker. Docker has been, um, 
laying down some very good standards of how to package and distribute your image. So we're going to talk about that. However, we're touching upon tools such as Buildpacks, for example, which uh, completely automates the way uh, your application is, uh, your e image is built by using some of the best practices as well. So we're touching upon packaging, and then we will talk about how can they deploy the application to a cluster, main resources within a cluster, declarative and imperative approaches, so everything uh, quite straightforward. How can they, like, very practical skills they need to deploy an application. And they'll bootstrap their cluster using K3S, lightweight. Uh, then I'm going to actually talk about a uh, uh, platform as a service, which is going to be called Foundry at this stage, and how can they still deploy their application? So they're going to make a difference between Kubernetes, you manage a cluster and your infrastructure, and then you deploy your application, or you can use a uh, third-party service such as Cloud Foundry and deploy your application straight away there. Um, so in this case, they will understand what is the difference between managing your infrastructure and completely, like don't care about what's underneath, you just care about your application. And then lastly, we're going to talk about CICD. I purposely divided these two sections. The continuous integration is going to be covered by GitHub Actions. The continuous delivery is going to be covered by Argo CD. And then we're going to crown all of this by introducing template managers such as Helm and how can they parameterize their manifest to be deployed to different environments. So this is pretty much the course by, and everything is pretty much hands-on. They'll have a lot of exercises. They have a lot, mm -hmm. they have a project at the end they have to do. So what I'm trying to achieve with this is pretty much everyone who has little understanding of some programming language, they'll pretty much be able by the end of it to bootstrap a cluster, to deploy to it, understand the difference between uh, a platform as a service and infrastructure as a service and really transition into CICD. So they have a very good skill set, which is extensible, but at the same at the same time grounded within a real experience what an engineer needs to do on a day-to-day -day job. Wow, that's an amazing summary. I need to do the course. Um, <laughs> and in your experience, what were things, what were things, I mean, because a lot of times, you know, like when you go through an experience and you're like, wow, that was really hard. I wish I didn't have to go through that. Were there things that you found to be particularly difficult that you're maybe trying to solve now to make easier for other folks out there? Absolutely. So, well, again, this is uh, a bit of um, chronological relativism here because when I first started with Kubernetes, it was two or three years out of the box. And the way I had to bootstrap it was by actually configuring the systemd units on the machine to make sure that my kubelet is going to be running and then I actually can have a cluster of two nodes. So at the time, I had to bootstrap my cluster the hard way. But nowadays, like we have tools that bootstrap a cluster. So from this perspective, the community really moved forward. We have um, a collection of tools such as, um, well, at the time it was Tectonic, but nowadays it's uh, going to be merged with OpenShift Container Platform. We have COPS, we have KubeSpray, all of these tools. We have even KubeADM, which is like a bit more of the, the old-fashioned way, but works very well within any environment. So all of these bootstrap tools are already there, very well developed. So my problems with the past, they're not valid anymore. So what I'm actually trying to achieve with this course is to introduce this concept of applications that were deployed to a, a VM, now it's a container, and it can be even something even smaller in the future. So I'm kind of preparing to lay these fundamentals of how can you still execute an application and shrinking its footprint in the cluster by using some of the best practices and some of the best technologies. So I'm kind of trying to lay this, um, this kind of mentality around it. And then mm -hmm. the ecosystem is always gonna change, but as long as you understand how to deploy, how to manage, troubleshoot and so forth, I think you can move forward from that. That's great. Like you said, also knowing that 
these things will change. So you have to have a mentality that's going to be ready for that and not just get stuck and stagnated in one particular um, way of thinking. Wow. Katie, this is fantastic. Um, we could be, I could be here all day. I'm sure you have a lot of other things to do, but I could be here all day, but I actually have this other meeting with a group of Canadian high school students. Um, <laughs> while we've been talking, while we've been talking, um, Gorka, can you get ready to share our screen? While we've been talking, we have a wonderful artist, um, Angel, who is creating an artistic uh, representation of all the different things we were talking about. Obviously, we would probably need about four or five uh, pieces of art to get to get all those things in there. But this was uh, sort of our shot at it. So anyway, we'll share our screen really quickly, and that way you can get to there. We go, very very good. Oh my goodness! Yeah, anyway, Ankel is extremely skilled. Uh, he's been in, lurking nice. in the shadows doing this while we've been talking. Um, so anyway, touched on quite a few different concepts here. I think the CNCF made an excellent choice in bringing you on as their ecosystem technical advocate. Will you be giving any talks next week in KubeCon? Yes, so absolutely. The talk I'm going to give next week is going to be around open standards and how this anchors extensibility within the cloud native ecosystem. So I'm going to touch upon, it's going to be more of like a history connecting the dots of how we got to this stage. So I'm going to talk about the open container initiative and how we got containers um, to be running using different runtimes. And then I'm going to talk about the interfaces because this enabled multiple tools to be integrated, such as the uh, networking interface, the runtime, storage, service mesh, and then cloud provider interface, which integrates within cluster API. So I'm going to talk about that. But um, I'm going to talk about standards around the observability stack, which is going to be open tracing and um, open metrics. And I'm going to crown that with um, open application module, which introduces or tries to introduce standards within the application deployment within the cluster. Actually, application deployment, regardless of your infrastructure. So I'm going to touch upon all of these points. But more importantly, how this actually creates this cloud native ecosystem that, especially the landscape, which has been out there, is quite overwhelming. But this, I think it's a healthy indicator that the community is growing and the technology ecosystem is growing as well. Uh, and I'm going to be part of a couple of panels. Um, on the first day, the 4th of May, we have a lot of collocated events. I'm going to be part of the cross-plane, um, cloud native cross-plane day. And I'm going to be part of a, a panel there. Um, if there are any end users out there, we're going to have an end user partner summit, which I'm actually going to moderate and uh, lead throughout 4th of May as well. So if our end users, please do reach out. I'm more than happy to share the invite. This is an invite only event. So I'm more okay. than happy to share those uh, details with you. And then, yeah, just join KubeCon next week. It's going to be great. Um, uh, tune into Twitch as well. We're going to have a lot of live streams happening. We're going to have happy hours. So there's a a lot of ways to not only get your technical kind of portion from KubeCon, but to get your networking um, um, portion from it as well. So do join uh, and do attend more than, uh, I'm actually very excited about the keynotes this year. They're going to be amazing. So yeah, hopefully everyone finds them the same. Good. Yeah, I think, I think we can all agree that next week will be an intense week, a busy week. Um, but Katie, once again, thank you so much for your time. I learned a lot. Uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on in the future at some point. Um, keep up the amazing work that you're doing. I, I think it's absolutely incredible um, and look forward to collaborating more in the future. So anyway, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me and best of luck with the Canadian school, high school students <laughs> and getting them within the community. You have, uh, yeah, you have a big challenge out there, but I'm rooting for you. All thank right. You. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye.